Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 80. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're asking the question, does apologetics help us read the New Testament? And we're joined by Ian Mills, who is a PhD candidate in New Testament at Duke University and the co-host with Laura Robinson of one of my favorite podcasts, The New Testament Review. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Reverend Daniel Parham, Dr. Chris Border, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So on today's episode, we are continuing our, our conversation on apologetics and specifically doing part two of this kind of mini series on how apologetics impacts our reading of scripture here, talking about the New Testament. So what were some of the things that you all took away from our conversation with Ian? We really uh, dived into some of the uh, motivations behind apologetics and behind uh, the interpretations of uh, different parts of uh, the apologetics enterprise. and. Uh, how that uh, contributes to the self-perpetuating nature of it. We talk about some of the connections between um, apologetics and how it shapes you as a person and whether it shapes you for better or for worse. We'll talk about the, uh, the contrasting elements of both apologetics and evangelism and how sometimes they're seen as two the same, um, when in reality they, they aren't, and, and give some perspective to that. And we also talked about how the contemporary apologetics enterprise makes you not a very good reader of scripture as well, obviously leaning on Ian's area of expertise there. All right. And here's our conversation with Ian Mills. Thanks so much for joining us, Ian. I'm honored to be invited. So how about we begin by talking about how apologetics has impacted our ability to read the New Testament? In what ways do you think it has done that? Yeah, I mean, I would make the claim not only that studying apologetics like makes you a worse reader of scripture, um, but I'd make the slightly stronger claim that I think the study of apologetics like makes you a worse person. Um, like it makes you a worse thinker. It even makes you a worse Christian, at least as I understand Christianity. I mean, I'm happy to talk about how apologetics or the study of apologetics prevents us from understanding, you know, reading the Gospels as literary works or thinking about the historical Jesus carefully or understanding Paul as a person in first century Judaism. But I think my bigger claim would be that apologetics is bad for you as a critical thinker, as a, a person in dialogue with other people, <laughs> um, and a, a member of a, as a member of a liberal democracy or, of course, as a member or a follower of Jesus. So that's a big claim that you just made, and I would love for us to unpack that. Um, but to to be the annoying philosopher here would be great to start with some definitions. So how for would sure. you define apologetics? Um, and then can you describe exactly what type of apologetics you're talking about and what the characteristics of that activity are that leads to the consequences that you described? Yeah, for sure. That's it. I mean, exactly. <laughs> I completely agree that needs to happen first, which is to say like apologetics, of course, is just giving a defense. It's giving a rational explanation for your behavior or things like that. Um, and I don't have a problem explaining to you why I am a practicing Christian, which by the way, I am. 
I am referring to the way we use it today, the 21st century Anglophone scholarship, 21st century, I'm an American, um, in America, how we use this word. Um, I mean, you can do the same like etymology versus use thing with philosophy, right? If I tell you, you know, um, uh, John's at Bethel. Uh, John, if I, if I tell one of, his, one of the students there not to study philosophy at Bethel because maybe I don't like one of the philosophy professors or something, which is, for the record, not the case. Um, I'm, I'm obviously not saying don't, you know, pursue the love of wisdom at, at, while you're at Bethel. I'm telling someone specifically, you know, there's this way we use philosophy. It's a, it's a discipline. It's a group of authors. It's a group of people. It's a group of figures um, that we all conventionally call the study of philosophy at Bethel um, that I'm clearly referring to with that. And that, that's what I mean when I'm talking about apologetics today. Um, I don't mean don't ever talk about why you're a Christian. Uh, I mean, don't do the sorts of thing that Lee Strobel, Norman Geisler, Josh McDowell, Ravi Zacharias, William Lane Craig, don't do the sorts of things they're doing. Don't engage in the study that relies on their kinds of books. Don't go pursuing a catalog of arguments to back up things you already believe as like the purpose, the, the driving force of your research. And I can, I can go more into what I actually see them doing that kind of holds these people together. But I think that's a helpful place to start is just to say like, look, look, this is who we're referring to, right? This is the book, the collection of books, collection of authors, collection of activities we're referring to is all, all those people, um, not necessarily whatever Rowan Williams is doing when he writes some reflection on Christianity, which I think is a far more compelling apologetic anyways. <laughs> well, I was going to ask if we can just press into the definitional issue. I was going to ask, and I will ask, is there a kind of common core um, that or a common essential property that all of these kind of authors share that enable us to speak about them within the boundaries of apologetics? Or do they, is there some kind of, what's the family resemblance between them that uh, enables us to put people like Bill Craig, Lee Strobel, the McDowell's, you know, all together? What is that uh, um, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I can make an effort towards that. At the same time, I think, and I'm, I will happily do that. At the same time, I think for the most part, we can kind of rely on people self-identifying. Like, of course, there are people who aren't, who are apologists who would want to resist that. And there are some people who call themselves apologists who aren't doing the same sort of thing. But I think for the most part, people today who call themselves apologists are engaging in a um, substantially similar group of activities, processes, and things like that. And it works, the things I'm criticizing, it more or less works to just to, you know, trust people's own self-descriptions in this case, in these cases. Um, and I, I, but if I'm to try to make an effort to sort of uh, articulate what I see when I look at these people, um, it is uh, starting off with a set of conclusions, starting off with a set of conclusions that's usually inherited from a religious tradition and going to build up a series of arguments to support those conclusions. Um, I, I have my own like analytic as opposed to actors categories with which I could describe this, which is they're, they're really, their aim is not to build a round picture of, you know, um, when, when Lee Strobel writes his book, Defending the Resurrection, he is not trying to give you a rounded picture of first century conceptions of uh, rising and dying people. He's not trying to give you the history of Jewish thought on resurrection. He's trying to build up a series of arguments which you can use, probably for yourself, but rhetorically to, to persuade other people, um, that what you believe, what you've already believed, the things you already know are rational. And that's apologetics, is trying to give you a series of arguments which you can use to reassure yourself that what you're doing is rational. And I, I think that more or less works. Now, I mean, the caveats will come to anyone who's critical, approaching this critical lens will have already said, yeah, but lots of people approach things with arguments. Uh, no question. We all have biases. We all have arguments. Every time I've sat down to write a paper, I usually had some idea where it was going. About a third of the time, it turned out 
the my initial conclusion was wrong and I had to flip it around, um, which is probably, you know, if you've never done that yourself, it may be worth a little looking in the mirror. Um, so I'm not saying, you know, apologists have conclusions already and other people don't. It's the kind of book they're writing. It's the kind of research they're engaging in that uh, I think has all these deleterious effects, which I'd be happy to talk more about. So from a practical note for a budding theologian who's entering into the academy and they're envisioning you know, apologetics as a rational way to approach their faith. What what would you say to that budding theologian, you having looked down the road a little bit and saying that this might be destructive? In what ways would you not curtail their faith, um, but at the same time give them a, a, a maybe a more healthier directive towards engaging in this space, right? We're thinking about how do we make a defense for the gospel? How do we make a defense for our tradition? while not actually, I guess, deducing it down to these principles that are only like cognition can manage <laughs> in any given moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think my suggestion to people is to stop reading books that are laying out a series of arguments for a conclusion that you want to reach, but instead go read books by people who call themselves historians or sociologists or artists or theologians. Go looking for understanding, looking for context, looking for to, to learn as much as you can about a subject rather than learn as much as you can in support of a conclusion. Um, and I think this is, you know, this is what makes good books with a very clear thesis. You know, someone who writes a book that says so-and-so, you know, arguing that uh, the last book of the Odyssey doesn't belong there, which is a debate, I guess. Um, someone who writes a whole book on that one topic, you know, what differentiates that from apologetics is they're going to be telling you a whole lot about who Aristarchus was, where we get this first Logion, or Scolion telling you that this may be a separate work. They're going to tell you tons about the compositional history of the Odyssey. They're not going to give you a simple series of arguments um, to sort of support one side of, an, of a conclusion. Um, I think that's the huge difference, is going, pursuing, learning, context, information, being curious about related, uh, tangential, you know, other things around it, rather than simply going to build up arguments, which doesn't answer the defense bit. I mean, the, the actual like how to make the best case for your faith is a separate question that's going to be so radically contextual that I, I hesitate to give you, like tell you how you should talk to other people about Christians just in categorical terms. So what I'm hearing you saying is that there's a difference in the way that contemporary apologetics in the United States in particular works where it is more theatrical than it is actually analytical. Um, and it's also predominantly insular. So um, what that means is um, it's, it's about reinforcing beliefs that you already hold, but it doesn't even necessarily matter. So in order to do that, you kind of paint pictures of the outside, right? And it doesn't necessarily matter if those pictures are accurate because the aim is not to get an accurate understanding of these other ideas. The aim is to keep you grounded in internal to, you know, where you are. And so even if the information that is given is inaccurate, it really, it, it doesn't actually matter. It doesn't actually change anything. It doesn't falsify what they are doing, quote unquote. I'm thinking about an example that came out today, Bodhi Bauckham's book, Fault Lines. Um, and I mean, not much of a shocker. I mean, a lot of people have talked about how um, academically dishonest that book is. By the way, Fault Lines is a book that came out, I think this past year from an independent publisher that uh, really pushes against the movement of wokeness, um, known as wokeness in, in scare quotes, uh, going across. And the claim is that it's coming and seeping into the church and destroying the gospel. 
but it's come out today that he entirely misquoted people, um, attributed quotes that were just made up and plagiarized a whole bunch of it as well. Um, but I'm willing to say that his base is not going to change on what they think about the book because it doesn't matter if it's accurate. Yeah, I think this is absolutely endemic to contemporary apologetics. Um, Laura Robinson and I on our podcast, New Testament Review, did an episode a while ago on Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. And one of my favorite chapters from that book is he says it's time for him to face the Jesus seminar head on. And he goes and he interviews Greg Boyd. So now we have a Lee Strobel, a professional Christian apologist for 10 years and an evangelical pastor, wants to go learn about the the Jesus seminar. And he goes and interviews another evangelical pastor who has published popular books in the press condemning the Jesus seminar. Now, I actually like Greg Boyd as a person. I've got nothing like against him, but he is not a Bible scholar. He doesn't know very much about the Jesus seminar at all, nor much about the gospels, nor much about the historical Jesus. So we've got these two people talking about what the Jesus seminar thinks. Um, and Lee Strobel is apparently in that chapter, our stand-in. He gazes at Strobel with an air of incredulity at one point, or not at, uh, at Boyd, with an air of incredulity at one point, um, and things like that. And I think that's like exactly what you're talking about, Amber, where you have, um, it doesn't matter to represent the opposite side well, accurately, to get a sense of their arguments. Um, and this, this pervades popular Christian apologetics. I'm really interested in what you said at the beginning, where you, you said that apologetics makes you a worse person. I feel like just anecdotally, anecdotally, this really resonates with me. I remember, I don't remember, I don't remember the exact circumstances of this conversation, but I remember my first year of university, I was reading like a bunch of apologetics people like Mike Lacona and uh, all the, all, uh, Lee Strobel and uh, Tom Wright's resurrection book. And I remember somebody, uh, well, in addition to that, I read a lot of books about like Problem of Evil or whatever, really pedestrian books mostly. And I remember somebody uh, who, who was not a Christian, like called me and was telling me something about something really difficult that she was going through. Uh, and I remember being like, oh, this is like exactly where I, I'm supposed to say this like packaged answer that I've read in these books. Um, and I like said this and, she, and it totally like fell flat. And she it was like a really awkward moment. And I just remember thinking back on that and being like, I think I just absolutely failed this person as a friend, like because I felt like this pressure from this culture that says when people say this, you have to give this as the answer. This is the right answer, right? And this is like, gonna bring this person to Jesus. And then I just realized that all I did was actually just like make a really awkward moment and probably like estrange our friendship in some awkward way. And I felt like, I felt like this literature pressured me to act in such a way that was personally deforming, both to myself as somebody who is a friend and to my relationships with people. So I really resonated with what you said, but I wonder if you can say more specifically about what you mean and if you want to provide any examples. Oh yeah, and I could totally share my own personal anecdotes of similar things from when I was an enthusiastic Christian apologist um, and how that made me personally more worse. But I think that'd be less interesting because nobody came, tuned into this because they're interested in me as a human. So let me make some broader claims, um, which is like... So to your, to, to your example, um, I think apologetics does not encourage intellectual empathy. It does not encourage trying to understand why people hold different positions, 
being rational people, being uh, however you want to define rationality, I'm not interested in that right now, but uh, being uh, people of goodwill, it does not encourage that at all. Instead, it gives you reasons to, so you know and you can be sure that you know other people are wrong and can dismiss those points of view immediately. And I think, I mean, that's a great example. I mean, beyond that, though, um, I think apologetics is sort of a gross inversion of good research practices. Um, and I don't mean just, you know, of course, we're all academics in one extent or another, or we're all engaged in this. And I don't just mean like that kind of research. I mean, inquiry, I mean, learning, I mean, study it, it teaches you, it reinforces habits of motivated reasoning, that is, reasoning towards a desired conclusion, rather than evaluation of the arguments themselves. That's generally even how motivated reasoning has been defined. There are a couple different schools of definition on this. There's a big neuroscientific literature on this that seems to suggest that um, you actually use different parts of your brain. You actually think differently when you're trying to solve a puzzle versus when you're trying to do motivated reasoning. And I'm not invested in those neuroscientific findings being correct. Um, obviously, to some extent, we're all motivated when we come to the Bible. We all have things we're interested in, invested in. Um, but it encourages these habits of like self-censoring information intake, which is a huge issue in evangelical communities where they they are monitoring trying to make sure they don't learn the wrong thing. And I can speak to this. This was a huge part of who I was. Um, it encourages, you know, looking for, instead of looking for more information, more context, um, trying to understand other points of view, it encourages you to basically go strip mining the historical data, the, the relevant scholarship for things which support what you already believe. And it reinforces those habits. Well, and just as a side comment too, regardless of the school of apologetics that you're in, this kind of motivated reasoning to me seems to be primarily motivated by fear. And, and that's that's this big impetus for apologetics. And we've talked about this a little bit already, but a lot of times, at least when I was sent to apologetics camp or apologetics conferences, you know, the, the reason the marketing push for it was send your kids here so that they can learn these five ninja tricks so that they aren't going to fall away from their faith. And I promise you that I'll teach you these foolproof uh, moves and you'll be able to stump, you know, even your tenured professor um, who's an atheist. And then, and then you won't fall away from your faith. And so there's this deep existential angst that's tied to these things that can be very easily manipulated by the quote unquote apologist. Um, but for the people who are receiving the information, who are studying these things, I, I remember actually being stressed out at a certain point because I thought, I don't remember all the gotcha arguments. <laughs> you know, I can't keep them all in my head. And what happens if I forget them and I don't have my notebook nearby and I can't find them, then I'm pretty much, I'm screwed basically. So yeah, Ian, what, what do you think about that? That's exactly my experience. And that's for sure what I've seen is, is it's huge parts of it are it's fear and resentment of the other. Both, I think, are relevant factors here. You also memorize arguments about why Islam is bad and atheism is evil and those things. It's self-reassuring is part of what, what these arguments do is they give you these arguments that you, you are designed to reassure you that you can dismiss, you can dismiss other opinions without trying to understand them, without doing the research yourself, because you've already got the arguments that back up what you know to be true. But if I don't have this quote unquote fear of the other, which is how we're putting it, not how it's understood or seen. Yes. If I, if I don't have these arguments for why Islam is wrong or why, you know, other religions are bad, then doesn't that mean that I'm not confident in my own faith? Isn't that a slippery slope to some kind of pluralism? Right. 
Well, I mean, one of the one of the things that apologetics does for you is, even if you don't have the arguments, you know, Ravi Zacharias has because uh, because he tells tells stories about the times he debated with a Muslim cleric in Istanbul, and so he's your stand-in to reassure yourself that even if you don't have the apologetics, the uh, lecturer at Oxford and chair of a department at TEDS that never existed, Ravi Zacharias. Uh, has all has thought about this and has engaged with the best minds, and you can put your faith in him. For the record, the worst things about Ravi Zacharias are not his lying about credentials and being a sham apologist. It's his sexual assault of women uh, and being a predator. For the record, um, but also there's all that too. One of the one of the aspects uh, of motivated reasoning is not that it is even necessarily uh, motivated towards cognitive belief for the sake of defeating an other uh, as if the other needs to be defined. Uh, but in many ways, it's actually reinforcement of, of one's own self-belief because that is as much of a threat to things as is, say, uh, an external group which is threatening to take your kids away. Uh, so it's, it, it doesn't even necessarily need to be you know, the, the answer that is required to defeat that Muslim apologist or the, the Muslim in the street. Yeah, it is the answer that is required to keep yourself within the identity with which you are already accustomed the, to, to minimize any form of cognitive dissonance that occurs within that. Uh, because we know, if, in effect, motivated reasoning is the opposite of a Bayesian analysis loop. It's, it's, it's the opposite of taking in new information and, and seeing how your belief system uh, and your your uh, assumptive worldview engage with that. And in many ways, it, it, it's striking how much this parallels people who are stuck in PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. People get stuck in a moment, uh, we get stuck in an engagement and therefore come up with maladaptive patterns to not be able to, or to be able to cope with life without having to, or without being able to process past that uh, engagement. And so I wonder if, if you'd like to reflect maybe on, on that interaction there, with, especially as we're seeing the fallout with, with Ravi um, and, and Azim uh, in terms of there was a coping mechanism which was built up around uh, Azim and this style of traditional apologetics, which has now been uh, torn away, uh, which has now been discredited, not because of necessarily the intellectual content, but the social content. Interested in your reflections there. Yeah, I think one of the amazing things about that story is that it took, I mean, it should have been ripped apart for the discoveries we then made, found out about Ravi's predatory behaviors. But the fact that it survived the earlier revelations of that scandal, and uh, even before that, it survived discovery that Ravi had lied about his doctorates, had lied about his posts, had lied about his jobs, um, and that several prominent Christian intellectuals had gone through and, I mean, Ravi was so contentless, this is something we've talked about, was that, that it existed precisely to reassure and um, explain away, resolve cognitive dissonances. Um, and I don't, I don't have much more to say about that other than Ravi Zacharias was designed to make you less curious. It was designed to make you less empathetic and uh, less self-reflective. Uh, Ravi Zacharias was there to give witty responses and tell amusing stories so you didn't have to bother to think critically about the positions you hold uh, or engage meaningfully with other people's points of view. Mm. Where would you say from the from an evangelical perspective, where have we gone wrong in terms of fusing evangelism with apologetics? 
Um, and I'm, tr I'm, trying, I'm trying to frame it in the sense of like, I think people view apologetics as explicitly evangelistic when I would say it's, it's not. Um, if it, like, I, I think you've already said that, Ian, in the sense of like, it's confounding, right? It actually can become a huge stumbling block. One of the mantras that uh, apologists like using is C.S. Lewis talking about being dragged into the kingdom of heaven um, and sort of like having the, these rational arguments that like compel you and force you to be a Christian often in people's autobiographies against their own will. And that is like so not appealing and also so not my experience of Christianity. Like why not instead present Christianity as something that is really enjoyable, that, that I really want to be true, that's really wonderful. And that, that, I mean, I would say on the contrary, you'd have to drag me out of the kingdom of heaven. And isn't that a much better uh, pre presentation of the gospel? Um, not that there are these series of arguments that really will for should force anyone against their will to become a Christian, but that Christianity, that, the, that Jesus, that Jesus as a representation of God is so compelling that um, there's, you know, you should want to be a Christian. You should want this thing to be true. And I, I think it actually speaks to, I think the question that I had about this, this distinction between evangelism and, and apologetics, because like it, it, to be evangelistic is exactly that. Like God is not forcing anyone uh, to conform to his will. It is a desire that he infuses within us, right? The ability to do such. And apologetics sometimes seems to ride against that and really can shackle someone towards towards a belief that they otherwise maybe actually don't have. Um, and so I think I think that's a good point to bring up and, and I appreciate your thoughts on that. Yeah, one of the things that uh, this reminds me of is the in the fourth gospel, you have plenty of engagement with uh, interpretations of, of scripture interpretations of uh, the temple, uh, you know, half of the gospel is centered around temple or cultic activity. And Yet it has a, a very different flavor to the synoptics. And I think part of that is, is because it's presenting a view of what it means to be a Jesus follower after the fall of the temple. It's, it's trying to say, you know, the Romans have come through, kicked our butts, uh, raised our temple to the ground. Uh, but here is a really attractive option for how we can continue with, with uh, cultic worship. Here is a really attractive option is how we can engage in what it truly means to be eudaioi uh, in um in a post-temple environment I'm wondering um to perhaps take a slightly different tack where do you see apologetics doing that i mean as opposed to the 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 sort of slam gotcha argument um which is more about cognitive belief but you alluded to it just before about the beauty and the and the attractiveness of christianity uh where do you see apologetics going in that direction yeah, absolutely. If if you and I are in an art museum and we're looking at uh, Picasso's Guernica, um, and I want to persuade you that this is a sublime painting, that this is a this is a profound painting, what I'm not going to do is going to say like, here are five arguments <laughs> that will persuade you against your will, even that this is one of the great paintings, one of the great reflections on the horrors of war by one of the greatest artists of all time. And by the time you're done listening to my five argu irrefutable arguments, uh, if you are remotely rational, you will believe me. No, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to point out the craft. I'm going to contextualize it historically. <laughs> I, that may or may not be part of other people's appreciation of art. It's certainly how part of how I appreciate art. And I think for Gornica, it's especially meaningful. Um, I think that is what I would say where I engage with a something like a defense of the faith, <laughs> something like a apologetic, which is 
let me tell you a story. Let me tell you why, you know, why you will be bettered for believing that this painting is sublime, for believing that Christ defeated the powers of sin and death. Um, again, I'm not, I, as I prefaced earlier, I don't have the answer for what all evangelism should look like categorically. I can tell you that I think that's way more effective in my context than making, uh, than using the cosmological argument or something like that. One of the things that we've been wanting to do in this apologetic series is talk about um, the philosophical, theological, historical, ethical problems with the contemporary apologetics enterprise, but then also think about more constructive approaches and ways that we can, uh, different directions that we can take, right? It's not simply to just dog on apologetics. And it sounds to me like what you're hinting at here is the importance of imagination, which is typically something that you don't try to touch when you're making an apologetic argument, right? Like we're not trying, because imagination is associated with fantasy. It's associated with things that are not real. They're not facts that you can rely on. And so it seems that you're, you're leaning more towards imagination, but then you're also in a sense, leaning more towards facts too, right? Like these are historical facts and a, and a kind of intellectual honesty as well. So I wonder if you could kind of further your thoughts on, of course, not like a fully constructed project, but where are some directions that we should be aiming at? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I understand it, Christianity is a story or I know uh, Brent Strong, one of your previous guests has criticized that in some ways. And I think there's some valid criticisms of that, of that as well. Um, but there, there is a narrative component here, and I think that may be what you're talking about. And that narrative, as it's uh, presented in different ways by different, in different, from different perspectives, um, throughout our scripture, throughout our the history of our tradition, uh, receiving our scripture, that seems to me to engage both things, both um, imagination in the sense of like changing the way you see the world, which I think perhaps is more of how I might use. Where I, or at least where I can connect with imagination meaningfully is sort of um, ways of viewing the world, ways of understanding the world. Um, and of course, a whole bunch of facts. That's a funny little word that's tricky to work with, but the but historical context, but, you know, a history, a tradition, uh, a series of information. I am not opposed. Um, I mean, this is a difference between Professor Strawn and myself, and myself, which is, I think some of the Renaissance gets a bad rap for interest in facticity and historicity in uh, what happened. You know, Professor Strawn talked about um, the questions of whether or not a thing happened being a, a uniquely modern construction. And that's just, I don't think that accounts best for what we see about the history of interpretation. Uh, there's actually pre-Christian, there's a whole bunch of discussions in the early church fathers about whether events happened the way they did and different fathers approach scripture. They don't always insist that scripture has to be functioning the same way. Um, but I think there is, that is something that Christians care about. It's something I care about, um, at least. Uh, and I think I see that as something that um, Christian, the Christian tradition has cared about. They just necessarily haven't shoehorned scripture into being the same thing uh, that, so I agree with Professor Strawn in that respect. Um, the Christian faith demands from us both an imagination in seeing the world anew in light of a story and is interested in events in history that is a certain kind of facticity. Um, at the same time, my faith at least is a creedal faith, and it's a faith that is invested in certain propositions. Um, and so I wouldn't want to flush all of that out. Um, 
But I also think an investment in propositions, a propositional faith, doesn't have to be constrained by the sort of modernist tools. For instance, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. That is a proposition that I happily affirm. Um, and I affirm it every week, and I affirm it hopefully uh, in the way I live my life. But that's a whole other conversation. Um, at the same time, I do not believe it can be historical in the sense that it can, it is not capable of adjudication with the methods of modern historiography. And I think the methods of modern historiography are really, really good. Like, it is, it is a good thing that we do history because we can say uh, Trump did not win the popular vote <laughs> in the last election or indeed any kind of vote. Um, so, like, history is a good thing. It's something we engage with every day when I try to find my keys or to figure out who won the last election. Um, I'm not anti-history. At the same time, I think the miraculous by its very nature, and we could get into whole conversations about analogical reasoning and human things like that, just aren't subject to those kinds of tools, those methods. And so this is a place where I think it's an incoherent project to argue for the historicity of the resurrection, um, being someone who believes in the resurrection. <laughs> what I hear you saying is that the nature of your object, it uh, determines the nature of the methods that you can use to approach it you know, not only faith propositions, but also the way that Christians maybe should properly approach the New Testament includes certain epistemologies uh, that are not merely apologetic. And also, uh, they go beyond historical methods, even though they include them at some points. Yes. But the nature of the object, i.e. God, uh, is not subject to uh, historical observation in the way that uh, we suppose, you know, this mug is observable to historical observation. Um, and so to try and use the tools of apologetics, which include very, you know, kind of straightforwardly modernist, you know, uh, methods, uh, modern historical critical methods to try and get to God uh, is kind of the wrong way to approach it. Uh, and so that and that in, in by extension also makes us you know bad readers of of what is considered Christian scripture. Just to be really nitpicky, I would just, uh, in order to avoid certain traps that critiques of methodological naturalism have sort of laid, I would not want to say the nature of the object because the nature of objects is something that we're always fallibilist about what kind of objects exist. I would want to say the kinds of explanations we use, um, which that's a whole bigger conversation. But I generally, I think I agree with you, Logan. Um, we, we don't want a faith that would be totally fine if it turned out we had definitive evidence that a person named Jesus never, ever existed. It seems to me significant to have a creedal faith that Jesus has to have existed for us to continue to be Christians. <laughs> um, and I know there are people who express visions of Christianity which that would be compatible with Jesus not existing. And I just don't understand. That's not my understanding of the faith. At the same time, I don't think the tools of, um, of history, as good as they are, can work with supernatural explanations um, can can allow for those sorts of things. Um, and we have to define supernatural in terms of the kinds of explanations they are rather than the kinds of objects they refer to because we don't know what kind of objects exist in the universe. And that's the other point that takes us off down other rabbit trails. Um, but so yeah, I'd say both. We have to both be open to believing things that modern tools of historiography don't support, can't support, wouldn't support, just are irrelevant to like Jesus rose from the dead. And also, you know, it would be a major problem for my faith if Jesus never was a person. One of the things that I've noticed in church contexts or even, even in seminary contexts where I sort of feel I'm 
pushing back against uh, the the influence of apologetics is specifically in New Testament use of the Old Testament. I'm thinking about you know the quote unquote like prophecies right about about Jesus that Josh McDowell told you you know that uh, these this is the evidence that demands a verdict right. And I'm just wondering is there an area that you think actually um, has had a worse influence uh, in New Testament sort of understanding or or um, what, what's your what's your thoughts on that? I think it's a fascinating case study. Um, my my own particular interest is just in reading the Synoptic Gospels, where this obviously comes up a whole bunch. Um, Matthew's prophecies and how to understand things like "I will call out of Egypt, I will call my child" uh, story, and the way that actually like insisting on this being the kind of prophecy that would have been recognizable to a Jewish reader before Christianity came around that only Jesus can uniquely fulfill actually makes us much worse readers of what Matthew is doing. <laughs> um, that if we want to view it that way, we're failing to understand that if you go back and read the in original context, it's clearly talking about the people of Israel. Um, Matthew is using it to create this mosaic portrayal of who Jesus is as part of a larger series of fulfillment prophecies that are prophecy fulfillments that beat by beat are matching other stereotyped portrayals of figures as Moses, Moses types, here relying heavily on the scholarship of Dale Allison, of course. So insisting on reading it the way Josh McDowell wants you to read it as one of however many thousand prophecies that only Jesus can uniquely fulfill, which is so radically improbable, actually makes us much worse readers of how Matthew is engaging with his Bible and using that to portray a theologically weighted Im image portrayal of Jesus as a Moses type. So you're saying in that instance, we actually, in, in, in reading it like the Josh McDowell way, we actually get a really, we, we really lose out on, on the depth, the deep theology, Christology, and, and in, interpretation of scripture that's happening in that text. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is true of just reading the synoptics in general. Um, the major apologetic project is sort of harmonizing these the four gospels we have, the four lives of Jesus, in such a way that really erases their distinctiveness, really erases their, their independent theological projects. I mean, if if there are magi and uh, shepherds both at the manger, uh, then we lose both the mosaic uh, portrayal of Jesus with having rulers come to worship him as an infant, which is something we know from like Josephus was like one of these things that uh, was a mosaic type. And we miss Luke's point that it is not the elite, but the poor and the marginalized that are called to be there witnessing the birth of Jesus. And if you put them both there, you lose both. Um, and I think that's uh, that's one of the failures of apologetics. The One of the ways apologetics can actually inhibit us reading these gospels. If we try to insist on harmonizing, on synthesizing, on um, holding all these things together as verbatim transcripts, uh, we miss out on the unique theological projects of the evangelists. So one of the things that the Synoptic Gospels sort of does highlight is the brutality of the ancient world. Uh, Ma Matthew pulls no punches about the slaughter of the, of the children in Bethlehem at the time and uh, is completely unapologetic about it. Uh, and so I'm interested in your thoughts on then how do we engage with uh, the New Testament in terms of thinking about its historicity and how do we place it within that context of, of it being a historical document in a very different context to, to the one that, 
that we are currently in because it, it strikes us that a lot of the time apologists don't want to really engage with that as a as a whole. The apologetics I've seen on this are people who are really concerned uh, with why that event isn't mentioned in other historians' discussions of Herod, especially other historians like Josephus who are not sympathetic towards Herod, um, and are worried that that somehow undermines the gospel uh, if um, that isn't a historically reliable event and will make arguments for why we should think that happened. Um, and I don't feel strongly one way or another on that particular point. I would say that if that's what you're spending all of your time reading about, you're misunderstanding what Matthew is doing with that story, which is drawing a clear parallel between, again, to harp on a, a trope I already talked about, a clear parallel between Moses and Jesus, that this is a mosaic event, the, the king, the ruler coming in and slaughtering the infants to try to capture, to get at Jesus. And this is one of the ways that I think apologetics can hinder our reading of scripture. And us insisting on the scripture being the kind of document I would want someone to write uh, right now of a history of modern history, um, I think prevents us from understanding the New Testament, the Gospels, um, as works of ancient uh, historiography, imitations of Jewish scripture, whatever genre groups the uh, the Gospels fall into. Uh, it seems to me that there's a very common perception that the degree to which scripture is inspired is also the degree to which it is unlike any other historical document from its time. What are some of the problems with that view? And how does it affect our reading of uh, scripture, in particular, your expertise, our reading of the New Testament? Apologetics is really interested in building up arguments for scripture being this unique, sufficient, authoritative source for doctrine and propositional beliefs about Jesus, God, whatsoever, whatever topic you're interested in. Um, and I think this is another thing that really hinders our ability to read the New Testament well. I, I think of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul going and uh, talking about this God as the stone following the Israelites around in the desert. Like, that's not a thing that's in the Hebrew Bible. That's not a, that is something that Paul got as a first century Jew from other interpretive traditions reading the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, we see this in other uh, contemporary sources. And I think if we're invested in establishing the, God, the scripture as unique, as decontextualizing it, we fail to be good uh, interpreters, um, both understanding Paul as a first century Pharisee, and it, we fail at things as simple as being good philology. I mean, I, I think, and this is a point I agreed with Professor Strawn uh, from your pre previous episode, whereas ultimately like literary approaches, imaginative approaches to scripture are inextricably bound up with doing history. You. To, to find out what a word, how you're going to read a word is going to be a historical project, whether you're interested in that word as the word chosen by the author. Um, I'm perfectly happy talking about authorial intent or as that word was read in the fourth century North Africa. Um, either way, you're going to be going and looking at um, linguistic conventions, trying to understand how the word was used at the time. Things, these things are bound up in history. And if you are invested in doing apologetics to defend scripture as being this bolt out of the blue, this piece of divine self-revelation that is not um, tied up in, invested in, presuming the same conceptual, imaginative, ideological world as all the other literature around it, you're going to be really bad at all those things. <laughs> and I think it's not an accident that apologists, popular apologists, are uniquely bad at this. Um, 
you know, you listen to some of these apologists who work in a Testament scholarship and they talk about not being interested in history beyond its application to apologetics. You know, a rising star in apologetics right now talks about not being interested in the synoptic problem because no one's ever been persuaded to become a Christian whether or not Q existed. So they're uninterested in that. And as a result, they're really bad readers of the Gospels. Um, and, uh, they're really bad interpreters of Paul because they want to see Paul as simply speaking the words of the Holy Spirit and not, which I'm fine talking about Paul is inspired, but not interested in what contemporary first century Pharisees were talking about in how Paul uses the same linguistic inhabits the same ideological world as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And because they're incurious about that, because they're uninterested in that, they end up being really bad at this. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think uh, this is a place where apologetics really gets in our way in being good historians, in being good interpreters of scripture, in being good readers of other people's mail when it comes to Paul. And that's not to say there's nothing unique about scripture. It's not to say there's nothing subversive about scripture. Certainly there is. These don't need to be, uh, these don't need to be polls. I guess, and, and if we really believe that the New Testament is, or scripture is inspired in direct proportion to how unique and historically a contingent it is, then what happens when somebody go reads, uh, goes and reads Life of Apollonius of Tyana and then realize just how similar these are to the Gospels? And then they just go, all right, I guess I'm done with Jesus because this, this whole Gospel stuff, they're just not as special as I thought they were. Yeah. So I, oh. It's kind of like a, it works in the opposite direction, right? Like you can kind of try to inculcate people from the fact and try to make it sound like these are historically non-contingent documents. But like, I just... Yeah, the nature of the evidence, you actually go, look, is this going to be so compelling in the other direction that yep. you're therefore going to have to conclude that the, these documents have nothing to do with God because they have everything to do with history. I know a lot of people who set out to become apologists and in the project of, and in the process of learning the languages, reading the contemporary literature, ended up being really great scholars and not apologists. I don't know a lot of people who set out to become great historians, great scholars, great philologists, great sociologists who ended up becoming apologists as a result of their study. Well, Ian, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us and sharing your insights uh, as a scholar of the New Testament and uh, thinking about apologetics more holistically in terms of how it affects us as a, as a person as well as our uh, ability or inability to, to read scripture well. But just uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a real, it was a real pleasure. Thank you.